sure I'm on here. Yep. Well, the spring break crowd. Welcome. I am going to move this back a little bit. Feels kind of weird. Rich, we were, <laughs> we were on different wavelengths there. He thought I did it. I thought he did it. But here we are. Spring break, and uh, I, love the, I love the intimate crowd. Um, I thought about, you know, ca- canceling this, but I thought, hey, I want to teach, and um, <laughs> I don't have that many more uh, options in, um, in, for the semester. You know, we've got to finish Philippians by the end of the semester, so I didn't want to take, uh, take this week off. So thanks for coming, and uh, hopefully you'll be in for a blessing. This is one of the, my favorite passages, and uh, I think one of the sweetest passages in Philippians. So you guys know that we've been in chapter 3, and you probably remember that chapter 3 marks a transition. Question? Maybe you remember that? Um, It does mark a transition in this letter. And Paul is addressing here in chapter 3 one of, probably one of the most serious threats that this church was facing. And uh, you remember what that was? Bring a great crowd. You, You know. What is it? Not division. Legalism. That's right, the Judaizers. Exactly. Um, It was a threat of legalism from that group called the Judaizers. They, uh, they, They posed as a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, and they were teaching that people were saved by Christ plus works. Remember that? Christ, so we believe in Jesus, preaching him, Christ crucified, plus... To confirm your righteousness works, meaning you submit to the Mosaic law. They taught Jesus was the Messiah, but that to truly be saved involved not just trusting him, but also submitting to the Mosaic law, in particular submitting to circumcision. And that was a form of legalism that was threatening the precious faith of the Philippians and what Paul addresses. And I said it's one of the most serious threats in terms of Paul's own... um, Puzzle and animation here because he repeats this command, look out, look out, look out, three times in, uh, in verse 2. And so why is it so serious? Why is this threat from the Judaizers and just legalism in general, why is that so serious for Paul? Well, it's because it perverts the true gospel. Legalism says we're saved with some amount of our own effort mixed in. It says that I get into God's family or I stay in God's family by something I've done. And you remember from last week, it's a me righteousness, a righteousness that comes from me or from my obedience to some standard. Something that I can, I can take a little, little boast in, I can brag in a little bit before God. Something I've done, a way I've contributed to Him loving me. A way I've contributed to Him extending salvation to me. It's a a form of self-reliance before God. Self-reliance. Instead of a complete Christ-reliance before God. And Paul calls it, in uh, in chapter 3, Paul calls it putting confidence in the flesh. Okay? Putting confidence in the flesh. It means putting some kind of confidence, some hope in ourselves. That's the idea of in the flesh. It's in ourselves. Hope in us, something we've done. And we're all tempted toward it. And so he warns the church about that in, in verse 2 with those, those three beware, um, beware for these dogs, these evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. 
And if anybody knows the dangers of legalism and, and particularly this, uh, this threat of, of the Judaizers, if anybody knows that, it's Paul. So you remember his background? Um, like we saw last week, he was the prime example of someone who used to put confidence in himself. And in, in the rest of chapter 3, then, he gives us a version of his testimony. He tells us how he used to think about his own righteousness and then how his perspective radically changed. As we're going to see tonight, Paul's not just giving us some random details about his testimony. He's telling us about his story so that we will think of our own stories like that too. He wants us to map our stories back on, onto his. He wants us to adopt the same way of thinking about ourselves as the way he thinks about himself and his former righteousness. And where, where am I getting at? Look in verse 15. We're going to end here tonight. But this is really the tail end of, of these verses that we covered, started covering last week, and then we're going to cover, finish this week. He says, verse 15, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. So at the tail end of his testimony, he tells us, hey, I want you to adopt the same way of thinking. I want you to think like, like this. And when Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road, his perspective completely changed. He tells us that he saw his, accomplish, his accomplishments in Judaism for what they really were before God. He says, what he once thought was gain, like we're saying, is now what? A loss. They were like garbage. Um, forms of self-reliance that were blinding him to his true need for a righteousness outside of himself. So instead of boasting in these things now, it says he, he repudiates them. He trashes them. says, I, I've got to throw these things away on the, on the trash pile. So if you want a, a mature perspective, according to verse 15, if you want a mature perspective on your life, a Christian perspective on your life, it starts with seeing your great need. So do you realize how pathetic your attempts are to please God outside of Christ? Even if you grew up as a good kid in the church, do you realize that if you've tried to please God apart from depending on Jesus, that your efforts are like garbage? That's what Paul says. They're like garbage. They've only fueled your pride. They've added to the delusion that you have something to bring before God. And a mature perspective then realizes we've got nothing to offer Him. And even more, it repudiates all those former efforts. It says, I've got to chunk those so that my hands can be empty so that I can entrust myself to Christ. He sees these good works, these attempts to please God apart from Christ as self-righteousness. But Paul doesn't stop with just repudiating our own self-righteousness. He goes further, and he says that he willingly and gladly trades all that in to receive Christ. To receive Christ's pristine righteousness. To gain access to Christ's perfect record before God. That's what we need. And at the apex of all of that is to come into a real transforming relationship with the Messiah, to know Christ. 
Paul wants each one of us to make sure that we understand to think like him and understand the surpassing value of knowing Christ, the glory of what he's accomplished for us. By his perfect life and his faithfulness all the way to death, Jesus earned the righteousness that we need, that we never could. He did what we could never do. He perfectly pleased his Father. He was the perfectly faithful covenant partner. And Paul wants us to see this in chapter 3. He wants to see it. He wants us to rest in this and rejoice. And so the mature perspective then includes not just seeing your own bankruptcy apart from Christ, but it also includes seeing your new status in Christ. And it means we trust God's promises that we actually are clothed in Christ's very own righteousness, no matter where you were before, no matter how defiled of a background you came from. This is true of you. This is what faith apprehends. It, it grasps these promises, and that's what Paul wants. That's what the mature perspective involves. And now, as wonderful as that is, um, Paul's going to keep going in our text tonight, but, but, but this raises a few more questions maybe that Paul answers in our text tonight. Now that we've been given Christ's righteousness fully and freely, what does that mean for us? How should we respond to that glorious gift? And there's some extreme responses that people can make, and I think some people in Paul's day were tempted to make. Some people have responded to this glorious gospel with something like this. Oh, hey, since we're already in Christ... Since we're already justified, it really doesn't matter how we live, right? We don't need to exert effort. We just need to keep remembering the gospel. You know, striving's not good. You just need to chill out, you know? You just need to rest. And we'll call that the passive response. There's a passive response to these uh, statements that we've, that we've looked at. And you might not classify yourself in this camp, but many people function like this. We're not proactive about our growth. When it comes to exerting effort in prayer or memorizing scripture or saying no to the impulses of your flesh and faith, we give up quickly, right? Kind of throw in the towel. We think something's massively wrong because it is hard. Yeah, catch that? We think things like, if I'm saved, why am I struggling so much? Why is sin still so tempting? Why isn't it, ready for it, easier? What's behind all that? Well, behind that is the, is, is the lie that my growth in Christ should not require much effort from me. Right? My growth in Christ shouldn't require that much effort from me. We think that God's just going to kind of take the wheel when I let go of it. And he's going to zap me, you know, and I'm going to grow with some kind of spiritual firepower um, that sort of bypasses my own effort. That's not how it works. And this passage is going to help us here. Others, though, on the other end of the spectrum might see that our salvation and access to Christ means that we really can grow, and we can grow to the point of perfection, Right? thinking like, who in the world believes that? <laughs> Some large segments of Christianity 
or so-called, think that we can arrive at some state of perfection. That we can and should be perfect in this life. We won't get into that because I don't, I don't encounter that amongst you guys very often. But that's definitely there. But you might be thinking, well, that's kind of crazy uh, based on my own experience. Uh, <laughs> but even though you might not acknowledge, maybe you might not put yourself in that camp, um, many of us function in this way. How so? Well, you're surprised, and then you're overly discouraged when you see sin in your life. You know what I mean? You function like you expect full perfection now, before the return of Christ. So we'll get more into that in just a second, but just just wet your appetite a little bit. The beauty of our passage tonight is that Paul keeps us from both of these extremes. Paul's going to help us see that even though we've been given a pristine righteousness, God's own righteousness, even though we've been set free to know him, even though we have access to his resurrection power, he wants us to know that we have not arrived at full perfection and we will not arrive at full perfection until Christ returns. And this guards us against that perfectionistic pride that thinks we've made it. And on the flip side, it also helps us with our discouragement and despair when we see ongoing battles with sin in our lives. When we expect that we should be perfect right now, but we're not. And instead of perfection, Paul says that our lives are characterized by progression. I'm calling it tonight a great pursuit. A most glorious pursuit. A pressing on to know Christ and experience conformity to Jesus. Our glorious goal is to arrive at the resurrection, to make it to the new creation, and to experience the final reward waiting for us there. And Paul helps us see that there's a race to run in the meantime, a race to get there, a race that requires strenuous effort and single-mindedness in our pursuits. And so he keeps us from extreme passivity as well. So let's look at this text, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Philippians 3, verse 12. We'll pick it back up in verse 10. Um, he's saying, This goal that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to that final resurrection from the dead. Now, lest you misunderstand me. I threw that in there. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So, even as I was reading that, similar to last week, you probably heard some repetitions, right? Did you hear some same things repeated twice? 
Paul does this same thing again in this passage. He, he makes the statement up front in verse 12 that he's pressing on, or that he hasn't arrived, but he's, but he's pressing on. Then again, in verses 13 and 14, he escalates it. He says, you know, I've, I've, not, I've not arrived, I've not attained to it, but I press on. He gives more information in 13 and 14. And then finally in 15 and 16, he applies his story to us. He says, let us all think this way. Let all that are mature think, this, think like this. So that's the structure. He makes a statement, then he escalates it, and then he applies it. But for our purposes tonight, I want to make that a little easier to follow. So I'm going to draw out just a few qualities of this pursuit that Paul's talking about here. This pursuit of Christ and becoming like Him in our lives. Or we could say our progressive pursuit to maybe appropriate that righteousness we've been given in real time, in daily life. And so if you think about Christ's righteousness as like a set of clothes that you've been given freely, now it's time for you to learn to put them on and live in them and, and, and work, out, work out the righteousness that you've been given. So Paul's going to give us at least here six characteristics of this, of this pursuit. This pursuit of Christ and of, I think I call it like chasing Christ in the resurrection or something. Because that's where all this is leading is, as we're going to see, Paul's final goal is the resurrection from the dead. So he gives six characteristics of this pursuit, and we're going to start uh, where Paul starts by observing that it's not a perfected pursuit. It is not, not a perfected pursuit. Meaning he has not arrived at a perfect state right now. And this is so important to Paul that he makes the point twice in two verses. Okay? He says, not that I've already obtained this, verse 12, or I'm already perfect. And then again, down in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So why is Paul so intent on us to, or or what is Paul so intent on us to see in these verses? He wants us to make sure that we understand that he is not fully perfected. But why does he say that here? Well, if you remember from last week, he finished the previous paragraph by telling us that he traded everything in to know Christ, to know his resurrection power, and to make sure he would reach or arrive at that final resurrection. And now he wants to make sure that we don't overinterpret what he just said. He's not saying he's arrived at perfection. That's only going to come when Christ returns from heaven. Look down in chapter 3, verse 20. That's where he ends this chapter. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's talking about our, the resurrection from the dead of those who have died and then the transformation of both groups, those who are remaining and those who are resurrected into a glorious body that is fit for the new creation. Pretty sweet. Now, this is a very important and encouraging point that Paul leads with here as he's talking about how he's not perfect. Okay? Well, how, how so? How is it encouraging? Well, it encourages us to know that even Paul has not arrived at a perfected state. Do you guys sometimes when you read Paul kind of think like, He's a superhuman. 
Um, it's tempting to think that Paul had a, perf- a perfect perspective all the time, that he didn't have to fight his own sin or fight to renew his mind or he never struggled. But here he's telling us explicitly that that is not the case. He had to fight just like we have to fight, and he struggled with besetting sins too. But sometimes we might subtly hold on to these perfectionistic tendencies, like we said earlier. How so? Well, we grow super discouraged when we still struggle with sin. And you know, we think, I shouldn't be struggling with this. Should we pass these temptations? Now, we certainly want to be fighting sin and, and growing in our ability to resist temptation. That's, that's, a, that's a promise that Christ is, is working in us. But we sometimes expect that temptations should be completely gone. And that we're discouraged when we still have to battle those wayward desires, that impatience just popped up again. You know, we're despondent when we find it hard to forgive someone else. Or maybe you've worked hard to put that lust to death for months, and then one day temptation comes back with a vengeance. And you think, am I even saved? You might be tempted to ask that if you, if you think you're supposed to be completely perfect in this life, never to struggle with the same temptation again. But Paul says here, perfection is coming. Perfection is what we're chasing. But we won't fully experience it until we're glorified. So that should be encouraging. That said, though, that's not all he says about this pursuit. Okay? He also says that it's a strenuous pursuit. So it's not a perfected one. We're not, we've not arrived. But it is a strenuous pursuit. And just like the first one, he repeats this one twice as well. A strenuous pursuit. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but here it is. I press on to make it my own. And then again, verse 13. I don't consider I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, here it is again, verse 14. I press on toward the goal. So I'm calling this a strenuous pursuit. Even though Paul doesn't expect full perfection, he does, uh, he does tell us that we shouldn't go to the other extreme, the other direction, to aimless passivity. It's actually very far from <laughs> passivity here. Uh, instead, he says that we have been set free to zealously pursue holiness, set free for this pursuit. Now, the ESV translates this verb as press on. Who has a different translation? I didn't actually look this up. Anything different than ESV? I press toward. Okay. Any other translations? Just curious. Pretty much everybody's press on. Wow. All right. It helps to know that this verb is the verb he used earlier when he said that he used to persecute the church. Chapter 3, verse 6. Same verb. He was a persecutor of the church. In his life before Christ, Paul used to zealously hunt down Christians. Kind of crazy to think about. So the idea here is that he's, he's chasing something. He's running hard after something to try to grab it. 
He's pushing himself to catch something. So this is clearly a strenuous pursuit that involves effort. We can't be passive in it and expect to grow. So that ESV kind of has this idea that it's that when, you, when we say it's we uh, press on, almost like an endurance concept, right? Like I'm just pressing on, but the idea is I'm I'm hustling to try to catch something. It's the opposite of passivity. So what's he trying to catch? What's he running after? Well, he doesn't exactly specify it here in this clause, does he? In verse 12, he says he just says I press on to make it my own. It press on to make it my own or to lay hold of it. But if you step back and you look at the context, he's drawing from verses 10 and 11, where he spoke about knowing Christ and knowing his transforming power and ultimately making it to the resurrection of the dead. So you could say he's chasing growth in his intimate knowledge of Christ, growth in his conformity to Christ, and ultimately he's chasing that final resurrected and perfected state. That's what he's chasing. So if you want to put it simply, he's chasing a perfect righteousness. He's seeking to experience it now in growing measure to make it his own, literally, that's what he says, to to apprehend it in his daily experiences in his life. He knows he won't fully arrive but he can continue to grow in it in increasing measure. He's trying to lay hold of it even now in its beginnings. But the point I'm trying to make here, and I think the point of the verb, is that this pursuit involves effort. And it's so easy to think that our relationship with Christ should just happen. You know? That I should just spontaneously and effortlessly pray without falling asleep. That I should just spring out of bed and into my Bible reading plan. That I should experience the Shekinah glory, even in Leviticus. That I should always have an impulse to love others and sacrifice for their needs without any pushback from my own heart. That I should just be able to pray once and never, never have the impulse to look at pornography ever again. But many times when it gets hard, we panic. We think something's wrong. We think, wait, this should be easy. This shouldn't require this kind of effort or intentionality. But Paul says here that it is a continual chase. It is an all-out pursuit to lay hold of Christ, to know Him, to mimic Him, and to get there to the final resurrection. You might be thinking, sheesh. Where does this consistent energy come from? You know, like, it's like the Energizer Bunny. Like, what, what's going on here? How does Paul not burn out? Well, he gives us one of his motivations in the very next clause. And it's our third characteristic of this pursuit. It is a gospel-motivated pursuit. Paul's lit on fire by what Christ has already done for him. Notice this in verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own. Here's the reason. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So why does Paul press on? 
Why does he keep pursuing this righteousness? Where does the energy come from? It comes from him knowing that he already belongs to Christ. Christ has already laid hold of him on the Damascus Road in conversion. So what's his point? Well, in Paul's mind, he's not pursuing righteousness to earn or merit anything before Jesus. He's pursuing righteousness because he's already in union with Christ. Now, let me give you an analogy that's going to fall short. Okay? Imagine your professor at the start of the semester kind of lines you guys up, your class, business class, your finance course, and said, listen, class, you already have the A. You already got it. I'm going to give you the A. Don't perform for the grade. Perform to know the material. I'm freeing you from the fear of grades to really learn the material, master the material, so you will actually become a quality financial advisor. Now again, fall short, but our, our status in Christ is secure. We already have the A. And His righteousness is already ours. And now we are freed to appropriate that righteousness in our lives, in our daily experience. We're free to actually learn to live righteously in a way that protects our humility. doesn't grow us into self-righteous presumption like Paul was, he used to live in back in, earlier in the chapter. We're actually free to learn to live fruitfully, to live a meaningful life. To live a life that matters. A life that's full of glory. It's full of dignity, full of joy, and not worried about whether we accept it or not by God because we already are accepted by Him in Christ. And that has very practical and transforming ramifications for your life. It means if we fall on our face today, there's always hope for tomorrow. Always. Every time. We can get up, we can try it again. We don't have to throw in the towel in discouragement as discouraging as our sin can be. It's like, so what if you had another panic attack? Like, you had another one. He's, Christ is with you. He's, he Let the panic attack become your teacher. Christ will help you get behind it to discern the lies that you might be believing in it. He'll lead you to the truth. He'll help you learn over time to live by faith and not by your feelings or your fears, as debilitating as it might feel right now in this moment. If you're battling an addiction that's hard to break, you belong to Him, as sinful as you might feel in the moment. So that means you can get back up. You're already righteous in Christ, so get up. Keep fighting. Don't stay down. Being gospel-motivated means we always have hope. There's always fuel for the pursuit. Always. That's why uh, we don't really like the term burnout, because that implies that the gospel ran out. And the gospel doesn't run out. We can get tired in ministry, yeah, but the gospel Christ never runs out. Now, the next thing I want you to notice about Paul's pursuit of Christ is that it's, it's not one pursuit among many, but it's the one all-encompassing pursuit of his life. 
Okay? Not one pursuit among many pursuits that Paul has. I'm calling it the all-encompassing pursuit. Now, picking this up in uh, verse 13, middle of verse 13, he says, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but listen to this language. But one thing, literally, that's all it is in Greek. But this one thing, you know. <laughs> and it's saying, I, the, the one thing I do is I press on, verse 14. It's what it's, it's pointing forward to. So it's the one thing he does, he says. So is he saying he doesn't do anything else? He doesn't work, he doesn't eat, he doesn't exercise, he doesn't go shopping. He doesn't talk with his Roman guard about the politics of the Roman Empire. I doubt it. I don't think that's Paul's point at all, saying I only do one thing, and this is it. Like, I, don't, I neglect all other responsibilities in my life. We know that Paul does a lot of normal things from his writings, just like everybody else does, and that's what we would expect. But his point here is that this pursuit is his overarching pursuit that shapes his entire life. Like I'm saying here, it encompasses all his other pursuits. It is the one great end of all the various pursuits of his life. So sometimes people ask me, Clay, you know, she's like that. Slit eyes. Are you saying all I'm supposed to do is read my Bible and pray? You know, I kind of got you. And, uh, they think this pursuit that Paul's talking about here only happens during their morning Bible time and prayer. Now, I know we sometimes think that way. Uh, but then after that, you know, kind of in their minds, the rest of their life is full of all these other pursuits. Like, I've got to do stuff. Like, I've got to go to school. I've got I to take classes. I've got to go to work. I've got to, you know, hang out with friends and all these things. So I came with a little diagram to show you kind of how this mindset normally plays out. Okay? I've got my devotions in the morning. Then there's breakfast, then class, maybe coffee with a friend, a nap, a work shift in the afternoon, maybe some home, more homework in the, in the evening, and then I go to sleep. And so, Clay, you're saying that there's Christ with my devotions, but then there's all these other things I have to do, right? I've got to eat breakfast, I've got to go to class, I've got to do these things. And so then what I just do is I, I put self right there, because that's really the reality, Right? If you're thinking in these terms, you're thinking there's me and Christ in the morning, and then there's all these other pursuits I've got to do for me in the rest of my day. But in reality, Paul is saying here that Christ should be pursued in all these things. Christ should be pursued in all these arenas, looking to Him in faith. He is the great, all-encompassing goal. Now, when we're chasing Christ as the ultimate goal of our lives, when, when our one pursuit is becoming like Him and extending His mission, then this colors everything else that we do. I would say it gives it purpose, energy. Um, you're thinking, breakfast, right? Prove to me, how does, how, how, how does breakfast, how, do we, how, how does breakfast, the one, the one goal of Christ, all right? Well, Christ has provided that food for you. He provides it for you so that you would eat it 
and enjoy it and be energized and that your body would respond to that, those calories, for a day full of good works that he's prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10. God has given us everything to enjoy, so when we enjoy something like food, we enjoy it to his glory. He made the food. He takes pleasure when his people are nourished by it and enjoy it. So, you eat breakfast. You can do it to the end of, of knowing Christ. Classes, right? You're hopefully at college because you want to be educated and equipped in a particular field. If you're not, you're paying a lot of money to be here. Um, work is good, and we are designed to work efficiently and productively to take dominion of the earth that Christ made in obedience to him. He's given us work to do the maximum good we can while we are here. Paul is clear that we're ultimately working for Christ, that he will reward our diligent and faithful labor in his kingdom. We also work hard, he says, to provide for ourselves and our families, according to Paul. To have a surplus, to be able to help our brothers and sisters in the church, to be able to use our resources to support the church and to further Christ's mission. So all of these things are moving toward this end goal of, of knowing and, and furthering Christ's mission. Okay, how about a nap? Well, maybe you pulled an all-nighter the night before. So you, you, you were pressed to get stuff done, so, so now you take a quick nap after your coffee with a friend. Wait a minute. Probably not, probably not good. Probably should switch that around. Probably be a little caffeinated after your coffee with a friend, so... All right, whatever. Maybe I decaf. Anyway, you nap because you want to have a, a, little, a little quick hit of energy before your work shifts. Why? Because you want to work diligently for Christ. So even in nap, God's, God's, you're not infinite. You can't just keep running. God's designed you to be dependent on Him. And so you can nap to the glory of Christ. Some of us more than others. <laughs> Now, okay, let's keep milking this thing, okay? So, seeing Christ as the one thing, okay, it not only affects how we do stuff, but it also affects what we choose to do, right? So, maybe you decide that you're just really napping because you're evading schoolwork, right? School's hard, and so instead of doing your hard work, you're just going to take a nap, and you really don't need it. So, actually, when Christ, when, when self isn't on the throne... And Christ is. Now it's reorienting even, okay, man, maybe that nap's not the best time for that. Maybe I just need to dig in and do the hard work here of being faithful in my studies, what Christ has put before me, so that I can be best prepared to do the most good in whatever vocation that he's called me to. So again, just showing you how even in the, the practical nature of life, how all of our goals funnel toward this one great goal of knowing Christ, extending his mission. It's the master goal that helps us filter out all those self-seeking goals that we might adopt for our lives. Now, at the tail end of verse 13, Paul gives us a little more info on how he pursues this all-encompassing goal. He says he, he pursues it by forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So we'll say it's a, it's a forward-looking pursuit. It's our fifth characteristic. 
It's a forward-looking pursuit. Okay? Paul adds some color here with this language. And he gives us some imagery of, uh, of an athlete, a sprinter, who's hustling as hard as he can toward a goal, toward the finish line. And he says, he says it negatively and positively. Okay, negatively, right? He's not looking back. He's forgetting the things that are behind, he says. He's not looking behind him. He's past those things. But there's more. He's leaned forward. He's pushing as hard as he can toward the finish line. That's the image here. That's how Paul says that he pursues his goal of conformity to Christ. Okay? Forgetting the things behind, straining forward to the things ahead. So let's talk about each of these. He says he forgets what lies behind, meaning he does not stay in the past. He doesn't stay in the past. He says he forgets the things that are behind. Now, he's not talking about a, a literal forgetting, like he has like spiritual dementia. He can't remember the thing that just happened like five seconds ago. His point is that he doesn't live there. It's not coming back to trip him up in the sprint. And imagine the sprinter that's like doing this. You know, what's he gonna he's gonna run in stuff, he's not gonna stay on track. These things are behind him and he and he's not looking back at them. His point is that he's not debilitated. Here's some categories. He's not debilitated by past sin. Okay? He's not debilitated by past sin. I'm sure Paul had some memories. I'm sure he had some, some things he wished he could forget, like hunting down the saints, imprisoning men and women and children, seeing them executed. How could that not plague him? But as terrible as it was, he wasn't debilitated by his guilt. He knew the grace of the Lord, quote, overflowed for me, end quote. Even in those very areas, 1 Timothy 1.14. In the context of him calling himself a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church, the grace of the Lord overflowed for him. And it's so easy for us to live in the rearview mirror in overwhelming guilt, punishing ourselves for our previous wrongdoings, especially if our sin damaged other people. But Paul would want us to deal with that sin and the, and the attendant guilt. He would want us to confess this to God honestly and to anybody else that we need to confess it to, but he wants us to trust his promise of grace and forgiveness and to live like that's true no matter what we feel. We're never going to get over the regret for past sins. And we're never going to be able to fully erase their consequences. But we can learn to see God's grace in it, like Paul says, his overwhelming grace, and his mysterious providence. Because what we mean for evil, God means for good. So we can trust him in those, those past sins. And forgetting what lies behind also looks like not living in past disappointments. So not only past sins, but, not, but, but, not, but past disappointments. We've got to leave those behind as well. It's so tempting to think back 
and, and to wish that you made a different decision or to, or to waste time in hypotheticals, wondering what could have been, what would have happened if I had made a different decision. It's also tempting to dwell on the disappointment when something turned out differently than you had hoped. We often wish for better days and self-pity or discouragement. But that will hinder us from being useful today. We've got to remember that God makes no mistakes, and even our past disappointments are the outworking of His perfect and sovereign and good will for our lives. So let's trust Him with those disappointments and move forward in faith today. All right, and finally, not living the past also includes not banking on past fruit. Not banking on past fruit. Not, not, living, in the, not living off the fumes of, of past fruit. Sort of as an excuse not to exert yourself anymore, right? We can sometimes live in the past in, in, in that way too. You know, we think like, yeah, I've already done my time serving in the church in this particular way. It's time for somebody else to pick up the slack or... We can start coasting a certain level of sanctification. We can think, wow, I've, I've really grown in this, this one area, so I'm doing great. I can really, I can really let off the pedal and just like not, not really worry about it anymore because I'm, I'm good in this area. But Paul's saying, I, I forget all of that. I forget the past sins, the disappointments, the past fruit. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the past fruit. I'm thankful that I've been able to learn from my past mistakes but I'm not living there. I'm not staying in the past. Instead, he says, I'm straining forward. Straining forward to what lies ahead. It means he's moving toward the future. Actively, aggressively moving toward the future. He's straining forward to what lies ahead. I love this because no matter What has happened in my life? I know the best is yet to come. What lies ahead is infinitely bright. It's infinitely motivating and worth living for. As I was preparing this, I thought, man, I I, I really, really, really wish I could teach this to the senior saints. Because sometimes this is an extreme temptation for those that are approaching the end of their life to live in the rearview mirror But man, even for them, there's so much fruit to be had right now and their best days are still to come. We're straining for this this now. And if you you really want to know, I mean, I could preach a whole message just on this one clause, right? What this straining forward looks like. Um, But we've already done that. Uh, I preached the whole series on the, the Growing Up series. So I'll just go back, listen to that if you're new. Um, it's, on the, it's on the app. It's called Growing Up. Um, but also in the weeks to come, Paul's going to apply this in real time to the relationships that we have in reconciliation with Yodi and Syntyche. He's going to talk through how they should, they should um, work this out in their relationships. He's going to talk about how we work this out in our joy, in our thinking, how we fight anxiety, um, in so many areas. So we're going we're gonna to get there. We'll go into more details there, but this is really this, the, the straining forward to what lies ahead. That's, that's our practical sanctification, day-to-day um, pursuit of Christ. 
But speaking of the hope that, of what lies ahead here that we're straining for, that's where Paul ends his testimony. It's another, it's another motivation here at the end to keep at this zealous pursuit of seeking Christ. And we could say that this pursuit is a new creation pursuit. It's a new creation pursuit. You think, what does that mean? When Paul looks out ahead, when he looks out at his final destination, he sees a glorious prize. That's what he calls it. A prize. And it's the prize of resurrection and his inheritance in the new creation. And this motivates him mightily to press on, to keep at it, so that he will receive this prize. Look in verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul stays with this sprinter metaphor here, and he says that he's headed toward the goal, or better, the finish line. Like he's, he's headed toward this finish line. That's the, that's the idea. This goal was a, a post that marked where the finish line was so that when you were at a distance, like you could see it, and you could keep focused on it and, and, and aim for the finish line. Um, that's, that's the idea. He's directionally headed toward this goal. But he wants something else beyond just reaching the goal. He's running for something. He's running for the prize, he says. And if we stay with the metaphor, the, the, the prize, you know, this winner of a race would receive a crown made of olive branches as a reward or a, or a prize. It would symbolize his, you know, it would be a very honoring thing to receive. And Paul's saying here he's running toward the finish line so that he will receive this prize from God. But what is it? Well, he doesn't specify it here in this clause. But again, if you pan out to the wider context, the prize is the same thing he's been pursuing this whole time. It's resurrection glory. Okay? A new and fully righteous body that can commune perfectly with Christ and is fit for the new creation kingdom. A glorious body like, like this. Not, we're not floating around. You know, Thomas Kincaid uh, in, in bodiless form. Okay? It's a new, glorious body. Like Christ's very own body. He's going to go on to say that. And it won't decay. It will not die. They can fully and finally take dominion of the new heavens and the new earth as God intended in the beginning. We want to make it to this. This is where Paul is headed at the end of the chapter that we've already looked at down in verse 20. But our citizenship being in heaven and we're awaiting Christ who's going to transform our bodies. And what's crazy about this is that in some mysterious way, our position and responsibilities in the new creation will be determined by our faithfulness now. That's a crazy thought. That's a really crazy thought. I've, I've said this before, so if, you, if this is a helpful analogy, then, or if you've heard it before, it's fine. But it's like you're playing a game of Monopoly and you think the game is lot like that's it. And then somebody walks by and they say, hey, you know you can buy a real house with that Monopoly money. 
it changes the way I play the Monopoly game, doesn't it? That I can buy something that's real? This game's going to end. You know, we're going to finish in 30 minutes, and I'm going to get really invested in it, and then it's just like, okay, that's over. But real life, I mean, the metaphor, right? Like, that's, that's, that's real. That's, what, that's, what, that's what's out there. The new creation is the real life. That's the one that's never going to end. And this life is like the Monopoly game. And what we do here toward that end matters. You can write down passages like Matthew 25, Luke 16, where Jesus teaches these very things. And this idea of reward in the new creation motivates Paul. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 9. He tells it to slaves in Colossians 3 that they're going to receive a reward from Christ if they serve their earthly masters well. This idea of reward motivates Paul, and it should motivate us to a zealous pursuit of growth and fruit in the here and now because those things are going to carry over into what's real, truly real. They're going to transcend into this new, new, new creation that's coming. And so Paul is saying, I'm, I'm funneling all my energies, all my efforts, all my goals are going to this pursuit. It's the, the one great transcendent pursuit. And so Paul rounds out this paragraph. We've already kind of looked at this, but just draw your attention to it. He rounds out this paragraph by appealing to us to adopt this way of thinking. Verse 15. Let us, of those who are mature, think this way. So again, throughout this whole portion, from verse 4 all the way down here, he's been focused on how we think. That's interesting, because he's about to pivot and focus on how we live in the rest of chapter 3. But up to this point, he's been focused on how we think. And this means, then, Paul's concerned with our vision. He's concerned with how we view ourselves, how we view Christ, how we view what's coming in the new creation. And this means, too, that, that Paul shares his own story with us, his own way of thinking with us, so that we would adopt that same way of thinking about our own story. And I love the, the sweet irony here. Paul's saying, um, hey, those mature people, those of us who are mature, you know what that means? A mature person realizes that they've not, they've not fully matured. I love that. And a mature person realizes that, that they're not passive in this endeavor either, that they've got to lay it all on the line. So those are the, those are, that's the mature perspective, according to Paul, and Paul is so confident. He knows that God will eventually bring any Christian, any less mature Christian around. <laughs> Anybody who has some slight disagreement with something he said, he just almost says it in passing. You know, he's just like, verse 15, you know, if you think anything else, if you think otherwise in anything, yep. Like, God's going to reveal that to you too. <laughs> it's like, I know I'm on God's side. Like, God's going to convince you of this. Um, it's a sweet, sweet statement of his confidence in this perspective in the midst of this tremendous threat toward legalism. And his only goal, he says here, is that we keep on living, and again, he's starting to transition here, that we keep living in line with what we've received, meaning this righteousness that we've received in Christ, that we live in light of that. And he's going to unpack that in the next paragraph in this imitation 
as, we, as, as, our, as our lives begin to imitate him, and then we really apply it in verse, uh, chapter 4. So as we wrap up tonight, just I want you to consider, where are you at on this mature thinking perspective? Where are you at on the, on the spectrum? Do you trend toward these perfectionistic tendencies or toward the sort of passivity tendencies? And wherever you're at, remember that you're already secure in Christ. Your best days are coming in the resurrection. And so maximize the days you have left with this one great pursuit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we are just so grateful for the clarity of your word. And we're thankful um, that you've redeemed us. We're thankful that you've clothed us with Christ and his righteousness and that um, you've given us such explicit instruction um, to help us live a maximally fruitful life. We fall far short, Lord, and we know that that's what we should expect, some of those things, um, and not be overly discouraged by them. So even thank you for equipping us even in that way to have a realistic perspective. And yet, um, thank you for motivating us to... uh, to lay it on the line for Christ and um, to continue to trim our lives in a way that, that um, just yields more fruit. And we're grateful for your care for us. Thank you for this group. Thank you just for the sweet privilege it is to teach and to learn right alongside them um, from your word. Thank you for teaching us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.